0: Welcome to the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm your host, Tristan Grunow. Today we'll be talking with Dr. Kenneth J. Ruoff from Portland State University, where he is professor of history as well as director of the Center for Japanese Studies. Dr. Ruoff is the author of The People's Emperor, Democracy in the Japanese Monarchy, 1945-1995, published by Harvard in 2001, as well as Imperial Japan at its Zenith wartime celebration of the empire's 2600th anniversary, published by Cornell in 2010. Delighted today on the Meiji at 150 podcast to be joined by Dr. Kenneth J. Ruoff from Portland State University. Thank you for being here. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. What is, to you, the place of the the restoration, say, in in Japanese history more broadly or, or global history even?
1: For me, the significance of the Meiji Restoration, uh, and really, you know, we're talking here about Japan's drive toward modernity, is that uh, as Japan modernizes, it it proves to the world that modernity belongs to the world. Now, here we are in the twenty first century, and no one really questions that. But if you go back to the nineteenth century, there were large numbers of Euro Americans who believed that modernity was predicated on race, on civilization, including uh, Christianity. And then Japan comes along, a non-white, a non-Christian country, and modernizes and pretty much blows that myth out of the water. Uh, The big sort of marquee event is Japan's victory over Mother Russia in 1905. And the whole world takes note uh, in places, Egypt, Turkey, Vietnam, uh, India, uh, I- people take notice of this, and it convinces them that in order to become modern, you don't have to. Um, you, first of all, you don't have to be white. You don't have to be Christian. But you also don't have to sell your cultural soul in order to achieve modernity. And so you know, people start studying uh, uh, the lessons of Japan to try to engineer modernity in their own countries. Um, The great shame of all this is that if Japan, by some miracle, had decided that instead of trying to be in tune with the so-called trends of the time, had decided to totally buck the trends of the time in 1905 and announced to the world, you know, we think that the international system of racism is a disgrace and we're not having anything to do with it. Um, because in many ways, their victory over Mother Russia is like, if you think about the international system of racism as having four pillars, they basically knock one down with their victory over Mother Russia. But of course, far from choosing that route, the Japanese go on to become all the more uh, predatory imperialists. And it seems as though imperialism is just inseparable from some form of Discrimination and racism, and the Japanese go on to develop their own uh, racial hierarchies uh, within their empire. With unsurprisingly, the Japanese at the top.
0: Mm. And uh, I'm I'm uh, reminded of, say, the work of, of Marius Jansen, where he, where he talks about, you know, at that time in that political spectrum or in that kind of political environment, what ch- what choice did Japan have? And if they were following th- the rest of the Western countries. In a project of mimesis, as say Robert Kilton or, or, yeah. or Robert or, or uh, Peter Deuce has called it, then well, isn't it just
1: natural that they would also choose to pursue imperialist expansion? I think it's unsurprising. I don't think it's a hundred percent natural because there's always a choice, and these decisions are made by uh, human beings. Um, the Japanese leadership obviously decided. To go that route, I mean, there were dissenting uh, voices uh, at the time, um, but it's it's definitely not surprising that they would go the same route as the major uh, powers at the time, because that's kind of part of what um, defined a great power at the time was precisely having an empire. And Japan, first and foremost, was concerned about Japan and getting entry into the you know the club, if right. you will. And uh, and so and to get entry into the club at least through the back door and then maybe eventually the side door and never really from the front door uh, they uh, needed an empire among uh, among other things I
0: mean, that is kind of the the limit I always thought of, of the mimesis yeah. argument or the mimetic empire argument is Japan is just copying the West and everything so of course they're going to copy imperialism there were. I mean, it it kind of gainsays the political rationale of the Meiji leaders. I, I always thought you know, they are looking around. They see Korea, for example, as its political vacuum. I think if if we don't do it, somebody else is going to do it. Not to say they were justified or right in doing it, but they are rational political actors mm-hmm. who see you know, in their own mind kind of a a, def- a defensive posturing that Japan needs to undertake. Mm-hmm prevent uh, Western in- incursion on what they deem to be their own territory. Mm-hmm. So to just say it's it's copying for the sake of copying just kind of takes away their agency as political actors. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So, of, co- of course, in your your publications about the, the emperor system and the people's emperor and, and uh, Japan at its zenith, uh, when you're talking about modernization, what role do you see for the emperor system in this modernization project?
1: Right. Well, um, one of the key aspects of modernity, I think that most historians, even though we don't have a set definition of modernity, and part of what happens at conferences is that people argue vehemently over precisely the definition of modernity, but nonetheless, most people would include the nation state. I mean, there is an argument among the people writing about nationalism, about... uh, whether it's, uh, you know, modern or, uh, you know, you can date it back further. But still, I mean, most people at some level recognize a significant m- modern aspect to, uh, to nationalism. And so the Meiji leaders, they need an axis. They need an axis uh, around which to achieve unity because it's not necessarily unified yet into a, a new nation state and they dust off the imperial house and make him uh, the symbol and so one of the things that I think is really important because for a long time people in Japan on both the left and right have talked about the monarchy or the emperor system whatever term you use is something uniquely unique to Japan and either in a good way, or in a bad way, but for me, it's just another example of uh, the nationalisms that swept the world in the late 19th uh, century and early 20th century. And there's really nothing unique about it whatsoever. It just, if you just substitute kind of nationalism for emperor or monarchy or nationalism for emperor system, then you can conveniently compare it to what happened in continental Europe, and eventually happens around almost the entire world. And in many ways, you'd say
0: what happens to the emperor system in the post-war is another type of reimagination, reconstitution of the nation centered on this focal point of the emperor. But now he's being recast in a kind of different set of robes, whereas in in the Meiji period, it's let's put him in the Western robes and Mm -hmm. we'll create this nation state around him as you describe in, in your first book. It, it's it's a kind of an, an, another reconstitution. Now Japan is a peaceful democracy around a symbolic emperor.
1: It, it's true. I mean, of course it seems contradictory, but the imperial house manages to redefine itself as a symbol of democracy. And perhaps nothing is more important in this effort than the present emperor's engagement and then marriage 1958-1959 to Michiko and the reason it's so important the reason it weds it it weds the imperial house to the post-war constitution is that he marries a commoner and it's a so-called love match and so there you have equality and liberty uh, two values fundamental to the post-war system. And so incredibly enough, the monarchy is able to rebuild itself as a, as a symbol of democracy. But one of the things, additional things, that people outside Japan really need to understand, and here, although I, I cringe as a rule when people use terms such as unique in reference to Japan, there is a specificity to this. Democracy in post-war Japan, many definitions of it among Japanese include peace. The very definition of democracy in Japan for many Japanese is peace. And you simply do not find that just about anywhere else in the world. Maybe in a place like Costa Rica, there's a liberal democracy that doesn't, truly doesn't have a military. Uh, But in Japan, the importance of peace and pacifism, those are not the same things. Uh, in the post-war period is just absolutely remarkable. and there is a specificity to that that I don't think is replicated anywhere else. Um, and uh, of course, in recent decades, you know this has been uh, evolving. Um, but my goodness, I mean Crown Prince Akihito is Crown Prince. I mean peace, you know, peace may have been the word to come out of his mouth, more than any other term during his his time as crown prince and mm-hmm. ever. So much so. That's another thing that, that the far right dislikes about about the present emperor is that he's always talking about peace, and they just get sick of it. <laughs> mm. I mean, I'm struck
0: by this idea that the,
1: the imperial system
0: is reinventing itself multiple yeah. times yeah. now. And I mean, I guess if there is one thing that we might... Hazard to say is unique and, and the, we certainly don't want uh, we don't want to parrot the kind of nationalistic rhetoric of Japan having you know the oldest imperial system in the world you know you could date it back to you know however far we won't we won't go far back as 660 BCE mm-hmm. but it is true that uh, there has been a a imper system it, even if it's not a single unbroken bloodline this institution itself has existed through many ups and downs throughout yeah. Japanese history, and it has been able to reinvent itself to respond to the current political and social milieu mm-hmm. as a way to maybe not stay relevant but
1: survive. Mm-hmm. It, I'm, um, you know, it's very flexible. They're very um, bright people. They have a lot of bright people working for them. Let me just tell one. Anecdote, even though it's mildly embarrassing for me when I first started my research on um, the people, what became the people's emperor I asked a journalist who'd long been in the I- Imperial Household Press Club, I asked him do the imperial family members read much of what's written about them? He looked as though I had, he looked at me as though I had a lot to learn, which I did, and he said they read everything. They read everything that's written about him. In fact, there is a section in the Imperial Household Agency that's charged with cutting out those articles and forwarding them to each particular Imperial family member so that the Imperial family member can sort of judge how his or her performance is playing out at the popular level. And they are constantly making adjustments. And so, in the contemporary sense, um, there was one. Chamberlain, who said at one point that we're fight it's like we're fighting an election every day of the week mm-hmm. in order to stay relevant to the Japanese people. You know, there is this interesting question. When you've got an imperial line that empirically, you know, no one really disagrees that it dates back to maybe, you know, the sixth or the fifth or maybe even a little earlier, fourth century A D, why? Why do you need to go to this immense trouble to create a fiction that takes it back to 660 BC. Well, of course, the original um, you know, myth-making occurred at the time that the Imperial House was not that old. And with the Kojiki and the Nihon Shoki, and they're trying to say that an institution that's actually relatively new is much older than it is. But if you fast forward to the present, why do you need to continue with this nonsense when you've got 1,600 years in your favor? And it probably boils down to the fact that if you can take it back before the time of Christ, then you're older than Christian civilization. And then if you, the trouble with the empirical dates is they're right around the time that Japan is borrowing a lot from China. And so if you can take it back further, then supposedly you can construct a pure uh, Japanese uh, you know, uh, culture and all, and it, it all originated before Christ and it originated before Chinese influences came into uh, Japan. Um, but it is, I mean, 1,600 years is pretty good. If you're gonna drape yourself in in being ancient in order to achieve legitimacy, then that would seem to be enough to begin with. And if they're, I, 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 I never heard that they were reading
0: the newspaper every day.
1: They, uh, they take very seriously um, how, each one of their acts, which is, of course, a performance. The best type of imperial performance, of course, is one that is so perfectly planned that it actually comes across as spontaneous, okay? I mean, you can almost make an analogy to a Japanese garden and that the whole point is that it's so perfectly pruned that it looks as though, in fact, there's no human hand when, in fact, immense thought has gone into each tiny little clipping well the perfect imperial performance is when it seems and the people are there it's like wow he just like spontaneously you know said this and this and it's like no there's nothing spontaneous about that but then afterwards then there's the careful evaluation of how did this play out is this something we want to stick with or do we want to adjust and sometimes it doesn't work sometimes like people are kind of like they they start reading that from in the newspapers that the people didn't appreciate some symbolic act, and then they just quickly change, they change gears. Mm. With such reaction to the popular will, they really are the people's emperor. This is something that aggravates the far right to no end, but even scholars who are on the far right, this is why they want to change it, they've had to concede that there's no other way to interpret the post-war constitution than um, under popular sovereignty, if the people made up their minds that they wanted to get rid of the imperial house, sooner or later the politicians would have to listen or they would just keep on voting them out. Um, And so they have to continuously reach out to the people, wed themselves to the people. That's where the marriages can be very, very uh, useful. Um, And uh, keep those people, when the poll takers come and ask, you know, do we need an imperial house? 80% of them still say yes. Mm-hmm. Keep them saying yes. Mm-hmm.
0: So I, I want to pivot now to, uh, I, I want to transition to talking about the place of, of the Meiji Restoration in your classroom. Mm-hmm. So when you approach Japanese history pedagogically and you're sketching out your lectures, I, I'm curious, how, how do you talk about it in your classroom and how does it fit in there?
1: Yeah, what has proved effective, and this was not something that I, you know, that I just started doing right away, um, it it definitely evolved, was to focus on this special role of Japan as the first non-white and non-Christian, non-Euro-American country to modernize. And Of course, there's some groundwork that has to be laid. I mean, the students, first of all, they have to get a sense of what, you know, how we define uh, modernity. Um, But, you know, most of them are familiar with the history of uh, racism, and then they pick up pretty quickly on the fact that Japan was challenging Um, a whole international system that, that said that the reason that Europe and the United States Reason they're modern is because they're white and because they have Western civilization behind them, and of course, that means Christianity. And Japan comes along and just completely, you know, blows that out of the water. And the rest of the world is, especially all these people living under colonial rule, are like, whoa, you know, there's hope for us. Um, And that um, has worked pretty well. I personally, the students that I teach don't have a whole lot of interest, or maybe it's me who doesn't have a whole lot of interest in the very fine detail of like how the Meiji Restoration played out, or something, and who, you know who are the players from the court and things like that. But in broader history, in a broader sense, the modernization is there's a real specificity to the role of Japan in global history in being the first. Um, And I've talked to, for example, diplomats, I don't know if you've ever had a consul general here who served in the Middle East. Those people in the Middle East could care less about the Asia-Pacific War. And, you know, it's just they absolutely could care less about that. They often have hugely friendly relations with Japan because Japan, you know, took on the arrogant Euro-Americans. And Japan also showed to muslims that you can become modern and still be muslim because the japanese didn't become christian um... and at the time you know this drove certain euro americans crazy so you have not only the yellow peril which vancouver you know knows all too well with the 1907 um... race riots but perhaps a little less known is the fact that there are people um, uh, both in europe and in the united states it's driving them nuts that. These people who seem to be non white and non Christian have modernized. And so, well, actually, the Japanese are pretty fair complexion. So maybe they are white, okay? Because otherwise, how could they have modernized? And well, maybe they're actually the lost tribe, okay? (laughs) Because that would explain why they're able. I mean, it's just driving people nutty. Um, But, you know, if you fast forward to the 21st century, we don't even, the average young person, you know, to the extent, that the term modernity means anything to them. I mean, China, India, I mean, it's it's worldwide. No one denies at this point that it's it belongs to the world, but that's not, that was not the situation in the late 19th century and early 20th century. Yeah. Hmm.
0: Speaking of the 21st century, if we gave you a time machine and said you can go back to any time in Japanese history and take along any sort of tool, technology, what have you. Where would it, where would you go? When would you go? And what would that thing be? Wow.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Um, Hmm. Mm -hmm Mm-hmm-hmm. I think this was not a happy time in Japanese history, but I think I would actually like to experience the immediate post-surrender period, because It's one of these curious times where, I mean, a a nation of 70 million people to a considerable extent has given all for a particular ideology and a particular conflict in the name of that ideology, and it's a complete failure. And it's like there's this incredible spiritual vacuum, and what do you fill it with? Um, And... You know, Japanese at the time filled it with a lot more than what the Americans had to offer. They filled it in all different ways. And so for me, it's even perhaps more of a dramatic turning point than after the Meiji Restoration, which would be another. I mean, the two periods would be a couple decades during the Meiji period and then the immediate post surrender period, because these are the big, you know, turning points, and it would be interesting to. To um, to be able to to see that uh, firsthand, no matter how hard we try to understand it through all the the text and all, I suspect that yeah, having experienced it firsthand would provide a different understanding. Yeah.
0: If you could take, if you could introduce one thing to the people at that time, what might you give them from the from the present
1: day? Um. I think that I would have suggested to the Japanese. I probably would have been disowned by my own government that <laughs> that they might do better than to throw in their lot with the U.S. after the war. That they might have done better to be neutral. I'm not. Sh- this is actually a, a, a case where maybe they really didn't have a choice in the end because it's almost like a a scene from The Godfather or something where the Japanese are like, "We want our independence," and the Americans are like well, we have needs, too, or something. <laughs> and then, um, so they don't, in a sense, have uh, a lot of choice, but um, that they could have um, gone uh, more independently uh, in the post-war period. Yeah. And then earlier, um, if the Japanese had said that the whole international system of racism is a disgrace, Let's say they do it after the Russo-Japanese War. They're like, we just proved, we proved modernity belongs (laughs) to the world. Just, you know, there's no, how can anybody deny that? And then they had said, and we're just not participating in this international system of racism. We think it's absolutely shameless. Japan, incredibly enough, would have the heroic status today that conservatives in Japan wrongly claim for it when they start talking about how Japan tried to put a racial equality clause in the Versailles Treaty and they don't understand that all that Japan at the time is caring about is Japan and stuff and they're not caring about other people. I mean if they had actually you know done that they would not only have this still very interesting and very important um, in terms of global history role of having proven that modernity belonged to the world but they would have been way ahead of the curve and totally on the right side of history to, to say that, you know, racism is just a disgrace and stuff. And and I don't know if that would have brought down the system, international system of racism any sooner, but Japan would, uh, you know, Japan would would have a genuine heroic status that it simply it does not have <laughs> as a result of having become a predatory imperialist itself. Would you say Japan was fascist? Um... Yeah, you know, this is an interesting topic for me because I guess I learned a hard lesson this way. Um, In my second book, there's some line in the introduction that basically says that, you know, I'm not hanging the importance of this book on whether or not Japan was fascist, but I happen to think that it's as good a term as any of the other ones that we've ever used. I mean, what does militaristic mean, you know? And was Nazi Germany not militaristic? I mean, uh, what does corporatist, I mean, you know, Shell Guerin has put forth corporatist and I'm trying to think what are the other terms that have been applied to uh, Imperial Japan? Well, militarist is the most common and stuff. Quest for autonomy. Things like that and all. Um, That, for me, You know, fascism worked as well as any of the others, especially if you wanted to bring across the fact that you just can't blame all this on the state, and the people were not the rubber dolls that they had been when Fukuzawa was writing about them in the years after the Meiji Restoration, that they play a very significant role, and there's a tremendous amount of bottom-up movements, that fascism is as good as any other term. Well, the thing that kind of surprised me about the some of the reviews, um, and maybe we should just get rid of book reviews because I, I don't know. I mean, it just people just for the most part just use a book review to write about whatever what they're they are interested in and stuff, and all, and it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the book. Was that several people just seized on the fascism issue? You know, either my definition was wrong, or like you know, Japan was definitely. Not fascist, and it's like, well, but oh, I said that it's it's it's, you know, all it, all I'm saying is that I don't believe that anybody else has come up with a better term, and maybe we should at least consider fascism because we need to remember the bottom up. And people just there's this whole industry, of of arguing over fascism that doesn't even necessarily have anything to do with empirical research and all. And and I was found that to be uh, somewhat tiresome. So. But my response to them would be well tell me tell me what it is then okay and and you know and maybe we don't use a single term but but do you I mean, I never had any of them all they ever did was say that it wasn't fascist, but they never were able to supply any any better term that we might use for the era so. how, else, how else do you hmm. what else do you call the, you know mass
0: cultural support for militarism and expansion and yeah mm. an ideology that
1: hmm. that labels any sort of criticism as unpatriotic hmm. Or, hmm. Jingoistic, but I mean, what you know? Gosh, I mean, the U.S. is pretty jingoistic at the moment. So, what where where does that take you? And so, so I found that um, I mean, it was a good lesson to me that I guess you know, if you're going to use these terms, that people are going to come out of the closet because their whole scholarly careers are predicated on uh, maintaining their definition of of fascism or something like that. But for me, it just it wasn't so much as, as uh important as what I felt was frankly overwhelming empirical evidence that I provided of significant mm-hmm. action at the popular level. And just interpret it, you can interpret it with whatever term you want, frankly, if you're if you're that bothered by fascism or something, but at least recognize the empirical evidence that shows, you know, millions of people going and providing volunteer service to beautify imperial tombs and stuff like that I mean these there was a significant popular agency to all this and it was definitely not just the Japanese government pulling the wool over everybody's eyes mm-hmm. I think it was, I, I, I'm reminded of uh, the Yoshimi Yoshiaki
0: just had a grassroots fascism right. book that was translated yeah. in, into English and uh, tells a very similar story I mean, there is this popular level movement supporting the war effort and and it's when you when you read oral histories and, and you look at after the war I mean we can say very kind of cynically well after the war everybody knew the war was a bad right. idea yeah. everybody everybody was against the war the whole time but then you know you looking at the culture in like, or you reading uh, your book Imperial Japan at Zeno uh, Louis Young's book about war fever about Manchuria in 1931 um, it really does make you question this you know people did seem to be supporting it, at least outwardly, mm-hmm. you know, inner reservations aside. But, of course, that leads to other questions about
1: uh, collaboration, support, resistance. Um, yeah, I mean, and, and actually, I should really strongly emphasize that Yoshimi Yoshiaki had his theory of grassroots fascism out, you know, before I wrote, mm-hmm. wrote my book, and I, I cited him. But I would perhaps even take it in a, in a little different direction. I mean, the, for me... The the Dark Valley myth has been an ongoing aggravation. Uh, I think it's a thoroughgoing myth. Um, uh, If you're going to talk about Dark Valley, there's a couple of things that you have to define really carefully. When exactly? I mean, do you mean the last year of the war when the war is finally brought to Japan? If you do, then I'll I'll buy Dark Valley. Or do you actually mean what the colonized people were undergoing for pretty much the whole time that they were colonized. There you have a dark valley, arguably, although even even in terms of the colonized, some are doing very well under the Japanese and others are not. So it's, it's complicated there. But in terms of the Japanese, um, I just don't see it. And one of the ways that I tried hard to really um, you know, try to put the biggest possible nail in the coffin of this dark valley nonsense was by tracing the fact that the Japanese were touristing the archipelago and the empire um, in the middle of the war and, and having a good old time and often the tourism when it came to the empire involved visiting the heroic battle sites where the imperial army had just won uh, an important battle and relishing it, loving it. Um, and so um, I think the Dark Valley myth is one of the more pernicious um, portrayals of imperial Japan. I don't, at this point I think few scholars take it seriously. But at the popular level it still gets bandied about a lot in Japan. So your, your two monographs have, have
0: both focused on the emperor system but there's a lesser-known third work that deals with the emperor's naked army marches mm-hmm. on. Uh, before we talk about that specifically, I, I mean, would you, if you were to take a step back and say, wh- what is it that intrigues you as a historian that, that made you f- come onto these three topics? Is it the imperial system, or is it the kind of whole culture around the emperor's system, or right. something entirely different?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that it's that I was... Uh, especially attracted to taboo topics hmm. when I was starting out and so for example um, when I was doing my masters it was just after the Motoshima Hitoshi uh, the mayor of uh, oh, was it? I can't believe this, I must be getting older and older, Is it? it's got to be Nagasaki, it's not Hiroshima and stuff. Uh,
0: The one who was assassinated for he was he was shot. He was
1: was shot, but he wasn't for having said that the emperor too bears responsibility. A very mild uh, statement, and I was like, wow, you know, the imperial house is still, you know, a volatile issue in Japan. I mean, people get shot for that, and uh, and there's all these taboos, and so he was um, attracted to that, and that's probably why we were attracted to that movie because it's an incredible taboo breaking a movie. And then the second book, um, I was choosing between two topics, the political right and post-war Japan or the 2600th anniversary celebrations. And I went with the anniversary and it was a lot of fun. And I can't tell you how many times that just average Japanese somehow, you know, it would come up what I was studying and they would basically, their heads would like drop to their knees and they'd be like, why are you studying that? That's a very embarrassing moment in the national history. And I'd be sort of like, well, that's precisely why I'm studying it, is to push it back into the public consciousness. Um, And, uh, you know, that's what I, just a personal opinion, but I can kind of consider to be good history. um, One form of good history is when people are pushing back into the public consciousness, precisely what lots of us would be just as happy to forget.
0: The Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project and the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website, magiat 150artsubcca Thank you for listening.